This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Boichsvaris. Thinking about food scientifically, I'm here with food scientist extraordinaire, Ephraim Schachter. We've been talking about human staples. We talked about milk. We talked about bread. We talked about sushi and fish. Today, we're going to maybe talk about elements of all of these things, but not as far as they relate to the bipedal human beings, but mostly our four-legged furry friends, our pets. And we're going to talk about pet food and some of the science and behind it and what some of the science in, uh, that has been exhibited in developing pet food, how that could actually have an impact really on the way we eat, which is, is quite interesting. Priam, I know you're not involved in creating pet foods, but like myself, I know that you are an animal lover and you care for animals. And did you grow up having a pet? You know, growing up, we had mostly pets that could fit in glass Containers. <laughs> um, but every summer we used to get these little puppies, these puppies that were being trained as seeing eye dogs for the blind, these Labrador puppies. And we would have about six puppies for a few weeks every summer. So I got a little bit of experience getting to know them. But I think, you know, many of us have sweet spots for dogs. The dog loves you so much and is so connected to you that having such a being around especially as, again, researchers have discovered, unlike their cousins, wolves, dogs are able to, Ephraim, look in the face of the owner and sort of gauge what their owner or what any human around would want. And, you know, people love to uh, sometimes make fun of the concept of emotional support animals. But at the same time, it's a very real thing that animals do, you know, pets really do serve, serve that role. And, you know, I tend to look at it a little bit more, and I hope this isn't apicorosis, I tend to look at it a little bit more from an evolutionary perspective when it comes to why animals tend to be that way. You know, a dog that can build an emotional connection with its owner is not going to be eaten. Dogs are, were originally bred, my understanding is, in areas of the world where they were bred for food. Mm. Um, and so... The ones that live on are the ones that are able to most find favor in the owner's eyes. I thought you were going to say something. That's interesting. I've never heard that before. I thought you were going to say what is pretty much standard evolutionary theory is that, you know, as man was in that hunting stage and he would find his, his prey, the dogs recognized this, this sort of subcategory of wild wolves recognized that being around this man was actually positive because like the rats understood as well, there's a lot of food here. In other words, man, and this really gets us un- into our topic, oh, interesting. doesn't consume everything that they that they hunt and ha- get at the table. There's going to be elements of what man right. has killed that he will not put into his body. It's considered the dross material. Rats gravitated around humans because they knew that it was a place for food. And dogs recognized the same thing that this was a place that if they come close to that fire, that they would be able to get some of those bones. 
Now, when it comes to food science, if all of this is true, it meant that dogs, now we'll talk about cats in a different area, but the dogs were eating scraps. Dogs were eating, by definition, the stuff the human didn't want. You know, the dog didn't sit at the table and say, pass the salt and put on the potatoes, right? The dog would wait. And that was the classic idea of, 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 of dogs and humans. And they, 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 preside, they pre- survive pretty well. And yet today, as you know, Ephraim, don't give your dog table scraps. Don't do that. That is the worst thing you can do. Right. And, and, and the pet food industry is really built on the fact that you're not just going to give the dog the bone. You're not going to give the dog, you know, the skin of the chicken that you didn't want to eat. You're not going to give the dog some of the, the, the tough meat at the bottom of the pot that he could chew. You're going to go out and spend a tremendous amount of money on specialty foods, which from when we're talking here in the year 2023 have become ultra specialized way beyond, even as I mentioned in the intro, way beyond even uh, human food. So it's, it's, it's interesting how it's almost a, a, a given that despite the dog's sort of innate tendency to want scraps from people, pets need to have their own food. So Brian, we know today, that probably if we did a survey, most of the food that's available for dogs is of the freeze-dried variety. However, in the 1920s, when canned dog food arrived on the scene, it was considered a tremendous uh, boon for, for pet owners. It was something that finally canned food, which was all the rage at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century for, for humans, because, oh, we now can can our food, arrived in the pet industry. But at this point... It's almost like canned food is, well, the secondary option. Well, first of all, you know, just as you mentioned, Rav, food preservation is incredibly important for human food. And so all of these different ways that have been developed to preserve food, whether it's canning, whether it's freeze drying, um, have been huge for the human food industry. But that tradition of giving animals scraps maybe isn't carried on in such a literal way today. But industrially, it still is. I mean, animal food is still a big um, market for a lot of the byproducts of the human food industry. And so being able to preserve byproducts is tremendously important because byproduct production tends to be a little bit more inconsistent than actual food products animal food manufacturer might have access to a lot of very cheap, low-grade meat. meat. Right, sure. Or or as we know, most of that, the original you know, canneration and the original canned dog food was was mostly horse meat. And these these were horses that were remember in the ninth in the twenty early twentieth century, horses were used to bring milk horses were used to 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 basically still be pack animals throughout the cities and when they died what are we going to do with this you know thousand pound animal you know send it to the to the animal food factory so it was mostly you know right. uh, like you're saying so there was the there was like the dross like grade b meat and the parts of the the meat that couldn't be a ground up into a good hot dog the hooves right. and, and other things, plus the horse meat. <laughs> and, that's, and that was packaged into the can. So you, you know, as much as we see high quality, higher people like to market higher quality animal food at the end of the day, 
unless you're literally buying food from the grocery store that's meant for humans and feeding it to your dog, it's going to be a lower grade, you know, the stuff that's used for animal food, it's not going to be exactly the same as what's meant for people. It's going to be what people don't want to eat because otherwise it would be marketed and sold to people. So with the creation of canning that allowed you to basically be able to produce lots of animal food when you had that very cheap material handy and and then it would last for a long time. What's the science about how it could stay so fresh in that can? Right. So the way canning works is it's an industrial process called retort or retorting. And what that is, is you have a container that is hermetically sealed. So it is closed. I mean, that basically just means closed really well. (laughs) And then so that no steam or anything could get in or out. And then you put it in a retort, which is basically a big oven that makes it really hot and cooks everything in that container that was just created. And once you take it out, that cooking process has killed all of the bacteria inside that can. And so nothing is going to be able to grow in there. And because it's hermetically sealed, nothing is going to be able to get in and spoil it that way. So it's a, it's based on a concept that was, was credited to Louis Pasteur from sure. pasteurization, where he showed that he took a, a special type of beaker and he put a broth in it and he just let it sit. And then he took another one and he put a broth in it and he boiled it and he let it sit. And it was a beaker that was the unique thing about this beaker is that nothing can get into it um, from the outside. And the one that he boiled stayed looking perfectly fine. The broth of it just didn't do anything with um, that was exposed to the air beforehand and hadn't been boiled went bad. And that was a way that he proved that there was no spontaneous generation of spoilage organisms. Mm, right. This which is the principle behind canning. So in other words, it really came with the understanding of how worms and maggots and other things get into food and how spoilage occurs. So once we understood the science behind it, we could rectify it. And as you say, discover that canning could work. And um, and I don't still know exactly how they determine what the expiration date on those cans are. Uh, it's 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 quite fascinating. Like like how do they know exactly? Okay, this stuff will be good for exact. Like, like, there there must be again a lot of food science behind it to considering what dates to put on there. Expiration dates are made by the companies themselves, and there's something that they that the companies identify as the MAQ, the minimal the minimum acceptable quality level of their own product which is the level of quality that they would feel still feel comfortable identifying with that product and having that product represent their reputation. They determine that level of quality and then they generally do something called a shelf life study. There are different types of shelf life studies. The most accurate shelf life studies when you literally just leave the product in the condition that you expect it to be stored in for an extended period of time and you pull, you leave a bunch of these products and then you pull them at different intervals and check it for, you know, bacterial growth and a bunch of other things, pH. Then there are the more common ones 
which is an accelerated shelf life study where they where they don't store the material in environments that it's supposed to be stored in they store it in much warmer this sort in like a hot room much and, warmer and then they use some sort of then they use some sort of mathematical equation to figure out based on that intense exposure what it would be in normal shelf life right they exactly. they work backwards so they they, they some, so you need a, a little bit of a a mathematical algorithm to be able to determine what would be. So the companies decide. And remember, I, I think, you know, when I was growing up, I don't remember that term best buy. It's best by that day. I think that's also part of what you're talking about. I think the companies were encouraged not to say expires or it's still okay, but it's from the way we are coming from, it's best by a certain date. Right. And the conditions that we're expecting you to store it in, and because obviously, and we touched on this a little bit, in you know in the podcast about Khalid Israel. But you know, if you were to take most products that have a best buy date and put them in the freezer, you can use them well past their best buy date. Mm. So the so the when we, we talk about that's great. So we talk about these dog cans, dog food cans. They stayed for a long time. Uh, that of course I think was an advantage. The problem with the cans was the the animals didn't always consume everything that was in the can in one shot. And so you had the open can and then you have the open can and owners were discovering that they would have to throw out some of that or there was waste in that open can. A lot of times, or let's say they had, they were feeding their animal and it wasn't so convenient about how to scoop that material out. So they would just, you know, put a lump on it in the dog, uh, in the dog's bowl. And then it would just sit there and not, and as you say, once it's exposed to air, it would go bad. So by the end of the day, when the dog would have for supper, the dog really didn't want to eat that stuff and maybe shouldn't have eaten that stuff because it's one thing to say fresh out of the can. But generally, you know, you're not sitting there like a, a child, a parent with a child feeding the dog. You just stuff the stuff in the dog's bowl and it would sit there for hours. Sometimes flies and other things would gather around it. I think right. because of that, owners, pet owners who became more concerned really didn't like the idea of of buying canned food. Uh, and, and therefore, science came up with the answer. Yeah, so freeze-drying is a very interesting process, and it's pretty similar in nature to actually how freezer burn happens, which we talked about in our first episode. Freezers are pretty dry places. And when you have something frozen and exposed to the air of the freezer, the water can migrate out of that product into the air. And that's actually called sublimation when something goes from a solid directly into a gas because it's frozen so it's a solid and the freeze dryer takes that and just runs with it it basically takes this frozen product and then puts it under vacuum so it pulls the moisture out of it it sort of has a rapid sublimation and what that does is while you dry it, while it's still frozen, is it it maintains, first of all, its same dimensions. It doesn't shrivel up or anything like that. And it maintains its texture after it's hydrated. But also an interesting thing is there are a lot of vitamins that are very heat sensitive. So if you were to put something in a retort, which you would need to if you were canning something, it would definitely decrease the nutritional benefit of that food. Whereas if you freeze dry it, you don't actually have to heat it at all. 
And so you can, it allows you to keep some of that nutrition in, which is sort of the beginning of a big push towards trying to focus on the nutritional aspects of pet food. So, um, so it's actually a, a serendipity in that way. As as the freeze-dried revolution began, whether it was coffee or whatever was becoming freeze-dried and it was being put out there from the from the I guess the owners of the company, oh, this this is this weighs less, the consumer appreciates it more, the consumer could store it better. But there was this other benefit, which was that it was actually healthier and better. So in many yes. ways, the, the, they were able, the people who cared were able to insert into those freeze dried animal foods more vitamins and better stuff for the pet. That was part of the uh, benefit of that, of that scientific advancement of freeze dried food. One of the things that, you know, we were discussing off pod was from the 1960s, the introduction of puppy chow. There was this idea that Arena, I think it was the first one to come up with it, that we're going to have special foods for dogs at a certain age. Healthier food in general, the idea that the pet food would somehow, you know, we would be cognizant of making sure that our furry friends that we love so much eat would be good for them. But also there was studies and uh, whole organizations that created a method of giving the right food for the right age. So there was a, a beginning was very, you know, puppy versus adult. But if one goes to any pet store today or in even any grocery store, you could find on the shelves determinations exactly at what age, what size, big dog food, dogs for smaller, dogs with better teeth, dogs at what age, from one to five, from five to 10, from 10 to 15, and exactly what they need at this age. It's really quite incredible. And as I said before, you know, we don't really look at when we talk about human beings, we say, well, okay, there is baby food. There's toddler food. The, the we back biscuit for when you're teething, the mushy food when you're, when, when you don't have those teeth. But then, you know, there's kid stuff that kids like, you know, but generally we assumed once a teenager was ready to wolf down those hamburgers from the age of 13 or 14, pretty much from there, Till they were ready for the nursing home, it's all the same food, right? We're all eating the same stuff. And it's interesting how in the pet industry, there was the understanding from you know the, the makers of these foods that we need to parcel it out based on the age and size of the animal. It's fascinating. It is. It is fascinating. And I think that, you know, another thing I was mentioning off pod is I feel like Pets really play a familial role in a lot of people's lives. And people are always trying to come up with ways to convey to their pets or make themselves feel like they're conveying how much they really care about their pet. And that can be extremely difficult, you know, for those of us who have pets that don't speak English. You know, if you want to convey to your kid one way of many to convey to your kid that you care about them is to say, well, what do you want to eat? And to prepare something like that. And, you know, my mother wouldn't like to hear me say that because growing up it was, hey, mom, what's for dinner? Food. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're going to eat, you're going to eat what I make and you're going to like it. Exactly. 
we can say that for for people, but for pets, there's just sort of this obsession of, well, let me do, there's all this research per breed, per age, what's the best thing? And it's because people really want to be able to use science to figure out what the best thing is for their pet at every age, because that's kind of all we have to go on. So, so you're saying that one thing is based on the love and the sense that your pet is your child, but unlike your child that you sort of want to empower and you want to give agency and you sort of wait for the child to tell you for pets who, because they're sort of perpetual children, they never really grow up despite how smart Lassie and Rin Tin Tin were. Uh, we sort of have to become their parent and their doctor and we have to sort of guide them throughout their lives to the food that's best for them. Uh, and it's right. interesting that for humans, well, once the guy, you know, has his heart attack, well, then the doctor's going to take him off red meat. Uh, once the, he goes in for his physical and we see how overweight he is, all of a sudden the doctor is taking out sugars and carbs and other things. So it's only when problems, when we hit that brick wall, that we somehow get advice from our professionals. Wouldn't it be great, though, if it, when you went, if you went into a grocery store and you knew who you were. In other words, you start at the beginning of the story. You say, okay, this is how old I am. Maybe even mm -hmm. ethnicity based on what, another discussion we had. Um, mm -hmm. This is whatever issues I have. This, this is the aisle perfect for you. So it would be great if somehow the dog food model would make its way to humans. Again, this is all some sort of, you know, wild utopian idea, but <laughs> it's from, from the look that you're giving me, it sounds like you sort of agree with it. It might put you out of yeah, a job. Yeah, you know, I I strongly agree. I, I I both strongly agree and strongly disagree, honestly, <laughs> because yeah. on the one hand, I'm a big I'm a big fan of the idea of moving towards a you know a preventative look towards medicine as opposed to just a reactionary look towards medicine. We've done it in the food industry. You know, we no longer try to just focus on treating foodborne illness. We actually try to prevent foodborne illness, but we haven't yet moved that over to medicine um, with a, having major focus. People tend to view focusing too much on preventative medicine as sort of this in line with Chinese medicine, holistic healing, but, but it's really not. It, it's a, it's, I mean, it could be in line with that, but it's also just a good idea. Um, so in that sense, definitely, and food is a big part of that. On the other hand, going into the grocery store and going to your, you know, uh, let's say a 40-year-old male, um, you know, this ethnicity going here, this is the food uh, mix that you should use. It's a little uh, Soylent Green-esque. Well, look, uh, look, look uh, <laughs> you, you would have the right, if you want to, to go to the 20-year-old aisle uh, and get that food, but you would right. feel the guilt. One of the things you mentioned to me was uh, something that you work that pet food producers are also involved in is making the product more appealing. There are these things called palatability agents that are added to pet foods. And a lot of that is the same flavors that are added to, to human foods. I mean, with pet foods, often they'll as we've mentioned, come up with a nutrient combination that's ideal for a pet and then pretty much use whatever food they need to and that's cheapest to get to that nu nutrient combination. But that doesn't necessarily taste very good after. So they'll add these these, fl like these cheese flavors or 
uh, meat flavors or things like sure. that. For, for to cats, now make for it. sure, they put in fish flavor because uh, they know, you know, cats have a, a right. natural uh, love for that cheese flavor. So what are these palatable agents? Are mm-hmm. they are they are they synthetic? What are they exactly? So generally speaking, I mean, it's going to be pretty similar to what flavors are in human food and what flavors generally are. Um, there are a few different kinds. So there's something called compound flavors, which is literally they take individual chemical compounds, they combine them together and in ratios that are different flavors. And that's a compound flavor. Now, there are natural and, and synthetic compound flavors, depending on if those individual chemical compounds were extracted from natural sources or if they were created in a lab from anything. It could be from, you know, petroleum um, or or anything else, anything organic. And they sort of fool the animal or human into sort of, ooh, this this is like an onion. This smells like onions to me. And that can somehow spur something in the animal's brain to that desire element it's really right, sort of like exactly it's, it's sort of like what we get by from seasoning food like all the time right really it's the same concept we put salt or pepper or something which which sort of allows everything to go down in a different way so this is just really uh, you know that same sort yeah. of operation or when mothers will blend up zucchini and put it in brownies to give to their kids yes yes it's sort of the right it's sort of the <laughs> sort of what, idea. what happens there you know, Fry, um, I mentioned on our first show how our relationship began on the last day of Pesach when you came over our house and we had those stale stuff. But Pesach was instructive to me not only about the the soup mandolin that went bad, but it was also instructive to me about the dangers in pet food. One of the things that we realize is that for Orthodox Jews like ourselves, and for all Jews, really, of course, according to the law, they can't own any grain hummates material on Pesach. And the problem is that a lot of the fillers in pet foods are from these grains, developed grains. In other words, in other words, hummates. So therefore, many Orthodox Jews who have pets will change their food for Pesach the same way we do, right? We <laughs> we spend a lot of money of course, paying a sach, as we say, for Pesach, for all the kosher for Pesach products and keep that industry going, there's also kosher for Passover pet food. The problem is, is what we discovered with our dog was that the change of diet can sometimes be very difficult for, for, for a pet. If the pet is used to something and the pet was used to a certain type of food, to somehow insert a different food, even though it's just as healthy, perhaps. But again, the pet gets used to imbibing and its uh, system of of excreting and everything is based on a certain type of food that its body is used to. When you sort of now change the diet in sort of almost a radical fashion by giving a whole different type of food that the pet's not is not used to, an older pet like ours was suffering. And because of that, you know, we 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 almost had to take the dog to the to the animal hospital. So we were instructed by one of our neighbors who happens to be veterinarian that this is one of the most common thing that happens to pets over Passover is that they will develop all bunch of stomach disorders because of the change in diet. What she advised was to sort of like slowly break 
you know that you're going to have to give your pet a different type of food to slowly break the pet into it, to over the weeks leading up to Passover, change the diet to the point that the pet has already gotten used to these elements. We, we sort of forget that our furry friends, they aren't goats that are sort of like trash compactors that have a tail. They also really, you know, get used to a certain thing. And, you know, when we, when we change things up on them, uh, we are really playing with their health in, in ways that could, could really be fatal as our, as our friend told us. So an older animal that you have now in, changed its diet, the stress on its system caused by the gastro issues can cause a breakdown of other important parts of that, of that animal. And, and therefore, one has to be very concerned. Sar Bali Chaim is a, one of the great principles of the Torah. There's, there's many things that we can do to, to help our animals uh, live longer and better. And it's a responsibility, a living thing. It's one thing, you know, to, to have something for a short amount of time. When people make that decision, Ephraim, of taking another living being into their midst, whether it's for five years or 10 or 15 years uh, and committing, there is a large expense, but you have to have what God expects from us, which is the compassion and understanding that comes with knowing what you're doing. As I think we said before, you know, if you, (laughs) if you are what you eat, you should know yourself and know what you are doing to those furry, wonderful animals that do so much to brighten our lives that do so much to to help us and you know you need to really <laughs> read the labels and you have to really go with things with with an understanding okay we'll be back we'll be back wagging our tails and purring <laughs> hopefully next time take care everybody be well thanks for joining us for another episode from the yeshiva of newark at idt podcast be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.